from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman. It's Thursday, December 17th. Today, what Russia hacked, the big, profitable companies laying off workers, and the new at-home coronavirus test. So on Sunday, Reuters broke a major story that the Treasury and Commerce Departments had been hacked by what appeared to be a nation-state adversary. That's Ellen Nakashima. She covers national security for The Post. She's been reporting on the broad, sophisticated hacking of U.S. federal agencies that went on for months. I did some reporting on that and quickly learned that it was the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, SVR, which had also earlier, we learned in the week, hacked the top cybersecurity company called FireEye. And it turns out that all of these compromises were linked It was quickly evident that this was going to be a major campaign and not limited to just a handful or a couple of agencies. The Russians had also gotten into the Department of Homeland Security. We also broke the story about the State Department and the National Institutes of Health had also been compromised. And it looks indeed like there will be other federal agencies that have been hit. And it's not just the federal government. Uh, It's victims across the private sector and not just in the United States, but in Europe, Asia, the Middle East. It's global. And how do we know that it was Russia? Or why do officials suspect Russia? Yes. And in fact, I should say that the U.S. government has not officially said that it is Russia. That is the conclusion, really, of U.S. intelligence analysts, but it is strongly believed to be the SVR. And they believe that because of tactics and techniques and signs that this agency has left behind, this is in a way keeping with what it has done in the past. In 2014 and 2015, the same agency, SVR, carried out another broad espionage campaign, cyber espionage campaign that snared thousands of victims around the world, as well as the State Department, White House, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. And how long was this going on for? So this current campaign stretches back at least to March. And what the Russians did, evidently, was hack into this company called SolarWinds, get into this network management platform, and tamper with the software updates. These are the patches that, you know, IT staff are routinely using to keep your software up to date, free of bugs, making sure it runs well. And, you you know, it's good practice, good hygiene to just do it. And so when anyone who was running this platform called Orion, when they got these patches, which were coming out in March, March, April, May, would automatically get infected with malware that the Russians created. And this malware had a backdoor on it, sometimes called a Trojan, which would sneak in surreptitiously into your network and install a door of sorts that the Russians could open at will to walk in 
and look around your network if they chose to. I was going to say, it sounds like a Trojan horse. They were using these patches, which you're supposed to just install on your computer, and then they were in. Yes, exactly right. Now, they had a large pool of victims, right? The company SolarWinds said somewhere around 18,000 clients around the world were using this platform and getting these patches. The Russians, it appears that they were more selective and going after the ones they really cared about. And let's say they saw that the State Department had fallen into their net. Once they had that backdoor access, they would go in, root around, and importantly, they would put down markers where they knew that they could come in, they could stay there quietly for months, not detected. And in the meantime, they could go in and look at your emails, take emails, look at other parts of the system. And this is what makes them so, so potentially dangerous. So do we know what they were looking for and if they found it? So it's not clear yet what exactly they were looking for in all of these cases. I mean, we know in some cases they did take emails or they were interested in emails because why not? Emails are a high value target. They give you a lot of information about what people are seeing, thinking, planning to do. But if you think also if they were in treasury, perhaps they were interested in knowing what sorts of sanctions might be coming down the road on Russia. And so there's really no one clear motive here that we're seeing other than classic espionage. So far, we haven't seen any evidence that they are using or have used this access to disrupt anything, take down uh, or get into the electric grid. But nonetheless, it's very concerning, and it's got a lot of people in the federal government uh, working late hours to try to figure out how broad this is, what they've gotten access to, what they might have taken, and what their motives might be. It seems pretty embarrassing for the U.S. that our agencies miss this, especially since some of the targets of the hacking were the very agencies like DHS that are supposed to protect us. So how did they miss this? So one thing people will say in their defense is that this was a very sophisticated attack. In fact, it wasn't like a frontal assault on uh, on the agency, but rather a more sort of devious, clever, what they call supply chain attack, because the Russians got into these agencies by compromising a company whose software products these agencies used. And that's just harder to detect. On the other hand, critics will say that these federal agencies like the DHS, like state the State Department, which was hacked, you know, what, six years ago by the same Russian organization, should have had much better detection abilities. So I remember after 2016, there was a lot of discussion about cybersecurity and how, you know, U.S. agencies really needed to amp up protections. Did that happen? And if so, then how are we still being hacked? Yeah, and so 2016 was a sort of watershed year in terms of learning about ways in which the internet could be used to interfere in democracy, right, and in the presidential election. What this attack has highlighted is the real challenge of securing 
that vast universe of comp- companies and vendors that supply software and patch management and network monitoring tools because the federal government doesn't really have visibility into these companies and how secure their practices are. It's just, it's impossible. Evidently, you know, SolarWind wasn't even aware of of the fact that it had been hacked or compromised. They're still investigating how they were first hacked in the first place. So how do you think the government will move forward to try to address some of these vulnerabilities? So FireEye has put out a patch, and earlier this week, FireEye and Microsoft activated what they're calling a kill switch, essentially commandeering the Russian command and control server that was sending instructions to the malware of infected machines. But that's only going to help prevent new infections and new exploitations. It doesn't help those victims whose, whose networks are already thoroughly compromised by the Russians. The task now is to figure out how far the Russians got inside their system, how much they might have seen or gotten access to and, and taken out. You know, based on that, figuring out what sorts of steps need to be taken to mitigate any damage. And then there will have to be a, a discussion about whether to and how to hold Russia accountable. I mean, the first step has got to be even just calling out Moscow. That hasn't been done. It it sounds like there's still so much that we don't know about this hack. So what are the questions you still have as you pursue your reporting on this? A key thing to remember here is that ridding the system of the intruders and restoring security is likely to take months because these hackers are among the most sophisticated and entered the network in a way that was undetected, were able to stay inside for months. It's been six to nine months now where they were inside many networks without being detected. And that's because they were able to collect and use credentials like logins and passwords that enable them to to be inside and masquerade as authentic users. And so detection was, was difficult. Just closing the initial digital backdoor created by them won't be enough because they appear to have stolen enough of these credentials and doorways, keys, into these federal and company systems that it will be difficult to detect all of them and do so in a timely manner. It could be months or years before we know the full extent of what the Russians had access to. Ellen Nakashima is a national security reporter for The Post. On Thursday, federal investigators said that software patches from SolarWinds weren't the only methods used by hackers. Previously unknown tactics were also used. Investigators said those efforts pose a wide-ranging and grave risk to government, the private sector, and critical infrastructure. Welcome to Salesforce Fiscal 2021 Second Quarter Results Conference Call. My name is Josh, and I will be your operator today. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. 
we're really here to be a great example of stakeholder capitalism, to really show how we're able to deliver a phenomenal return for our shareholders as well as for our stakeholders. And um, in many ways, this quarter really is a victory for stakeholder capitalism. So on corporate conference calls in some of the largest companies in the U.S., what have executives been saying? Yeah, the CEOs of the largest companies in the country were pretty much exuberant on many of the conference calls with analysts and investors this year. With, with all that's happening around the world, and it's really unfortunate, uh, but it's made gaming the largest entertainment medium in the world. Our results through the first nine months of the year clearly indicate that for many customers, the home has never been more important. Many of them have had the best year on record, and they have been gloating about their success and their results this year. Uh, I think I've never felt more optimistic about the future of Tesla than I, than I do today. We heard this kind of thing from CEOs like Mark Benioff of Salesforce, Jensen Huang of NVIDIA, Craig Benier of Home Depot, Elon Musk of Tesla, and John Rainey, the CFO of PayPal. The strong acceleration we've experienced this year, along with the pronounced shift in consumer behavior, sets us up exceptionally well for the years ahead. I don't think we've ever been more excited or energized about our prospects. I'm Doug McMillan. I'm a corporate accountability reporter at The Post. And what we've seen is that a lot of the companies that are having great years are also laying off employees. And it's really raising this question of during the most difficult economic times, do the biggest companies and the companies that are doing really well and succeeding, do they have some broader responsibility to the community to not lay off workers and to help the community kind of get through this crisis? I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of big companies were making promises about how they would help the country through this crisis. So what were some of those promises? Companies kind of stepped to the forefront and make this commitment that they were not just going to help their shareholders or their investors this year. They were going to kind of be leaders in the community. They were going to help their employees and their communities get through this crisis. We had companies like Apple come out and say, hey, we're going to spend millions of dollars um, manufacturing masks and trying to distribute masks to healthcare workers. I'm also very pleased to tell you this morning that Apple is so- has sourced, procured, and is donating 10 million masks to the medical community in the United States. We had companies like PayPal say, we're going to put million aside for minority-owned small businesses to invest in those companies and try to help them make it through this crisis. Twice as many Black-owned businesses uh, were impacted by COVID-19 and the economic crisis associated with that than white-owned businesses. And just traditionally, Black-owned businesses have a harder time getting financing uh, than white-owned businesses. And in this time, it's practically impossible for them to get loans. And so we put aside $10 million of grants to small businesses, not even loans, just grants to small businesses 
So we heard a lot of these kinds of commitments. And one of the big commitments that we heard from a lot of these companies repeatedly was, we're not going to lay off staff during this crisis because one of the things that companies want to do during a crisis like this is to give their employees kind of a peace of mind and security that they're not going to have to worry about their jobs, even though they're worrying about their medical bills or paying their rent or you know many other things th- through a crisis like this, that they would have security of their peace of mind. And have companies held up these promises? In many cases, we saw companies fail to make good on their promises pretty quickly, actually. Um, Right out of the gate, we saw companies like Salesforce, Wells Fargo, and a few others who had pledged not to lay off any employees during the coronavirus fail to make good on that promise. They actually laid off at least 1,000 employees just five or six or so months into the uh, crisis. It was surprising because, you know, a lot of companies made these commitments early on the crisis, not knowing how it was going to affect their bottom lines. And subsequently, they found out that the coronavirus actually helped their bottom lines, that companies like, you know, Berkshire Hathaway made $56 billion in profit in the second and third quarters of the year alone, and yet went ahead and laid off employees anyways. Over 13,000 employees were laid off from a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, even though they were extremely profitable. A company like Salesforce, which is one of the leading technology companies that makes software for large businesses, has had a stellar year, one of its best years in its history, um, setting all kinds of records for revenue and profit. And in August, literally a day after they announced some of their best results, they laid off 1,000 employees. It was late August, I guess. And I actually had wound up just hearing from another guy on my team who was also laid off. We talked to somebody named Gary Walker, who is a systems engineer at Salesforce. I worked for Salesforce for... 12 and a half years, a little more than that. It would have been 13 years in March. He said that earlier in the year when the CEO of Salesforce pledged not to lay off employees, he didn't put much faith in it. They said they weren't going to lay anybody off for 90 days, and they didn't, period. I didn't put much stock by that for the simple fact that they were very careful about what they said. They said what they were actually going to do, which is, okay, you know what? I'll... I'll take that. That's not a bad thing on their part. They kept too precisely what they said. At the same time, does it make their actions good? No. But does it make them, you know, business sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. He was surprised to be laid off and he was a little bit frustrated, but he also made the point that, you know, he's not one of the people who's suffering the most during the pandemic. Salesforce is taking care of him. They're giving him generous severance benefits. He has skills and he's going to be able to find another job. He's not too worried about that. The story is 30 million people who are out of work who didn't get six months of severance and six months of paid COBRA. The story is the people who don't have those options. The people who are living paycheck to paycheck, they're the ones who are screwed. But the kind of the jarring reality of getting laid off from one of the best performers of the year in the middle of the pandemic was a surprise to him. So what did companies say about why they laid people off, even though they had made these promises and also were seeing big profits? We reached out to all of the companies who laid people off and 
by far the most common response was these layoffs were not directly related to the pandemic. That these were part of you know broader cost-cutting measures. A company that a word that companies typically like to use is restructuring. That you know we're trying to move from these declining business lines to these growing business lines. And because all these people over here were working on the declining business lines, well, the easiest way to make that shift is just to let those people go. And to underscore this this answer, a lot of the companies we talked to said, actually, we've hired more people than we've let go this year. So overall, we're still growing. We just happened to lay these people off because they were getting in their w- our way of progress and growing into these new areas. As if that's you know an excuse to lay people off in the middle of a pandemic. So is there a sense that these big companies are sort of using the pandemic as an excuse to lay people off, even though they're doing quite well themselves? Yeah, I definitely think it's come at a convenient time for some of these companies. One example that we looked at closely is this technology giant Cisco, which employs over 70,000 people. Um, They have quietly over the past few months been laying off thousands of those employees. And although the CEO... Chuck Robbins, this guy who earlier this year was one of the CEOs pledging not to hold layoffs, although he's been very quiet about these layoffs and he's not spoken publicly about doing the layoffs, he's actually on calls with analysts been saying that, you know, this moment, this pandemic has provided, quote unquote, air cover for Cisco to make some of the moves that it's making. This this pandemic is basically just, it's just giving us the air cover to accelerate it, you know, the transition of R&D expense into, you know, cloud security, cloud collab. away. From- so I guess there's sort of this broader question here of what is the responsibility of these big businesses and corporations? Is it their responsibility to help serve the broader community and help the country through this pandemic? Or are they only responsible to make the most profits for their shareholders? It's a really good question. And it's been put into focus this year. A corporate ethics expert that we talked to put it this way, the biggest and most successful companies have a responsibility to help buffer the human impact of the crisis. And I think that there's a lot of resonance that in in that. But it's not just the experts that we talked to. The CEOs of these companies themselves have been champions of this idea that corporations should play more of a leading role in our society and should have a bigger responsibility than just giving money to shareholders. Um, This was kind of crystallized a little more than a year ago, 181 CEOs of the biggest companies, almost all companies that you've heard of, signed a pledge that says that they are going to not focus their efforts only on giving money back to shareholders, but that the purpose of their corporations should be to improve the lives of their employees, their suppliers, their customers, and their broader communities and and help the environment, for example. So it's interesting that Almost, you know, immediately, a few months after they signed this pledge, these same CEOs had a test of what they were going to do when the community was facing a crisis and really needed the support of uh, big companies like this. And I think we're seeing that play out. You know, I think I think that there's certainly have been great examples of companies making big commitments to helping healthcare workers, helping frontline workers, you know, increasing hourly pay of hourly workers and trying to be more 
flexible with um, employees' time and trying to help their needs with healthcare and family care and that kind of thing. But you know, generally, when you look at this over this um, headline stat that we found, which is you know, 45 of the 50 largest companies in the country were profitable during the pandemic, and yet 27 of the 50 largest companies laid people off. I think it's striking that not all these companies are doing everything that they can do to try to help the community through the pandemic. Doug McMillan is a corporate accountability reporter for The Post. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing. Just this week, first on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, the FDA authorized two new tests that you can take at home and get results instantly, you know, within 15 minutes and know whether you're positive or negative for the coronavirus. William One is a health and science reporter for The Post. This makes it in total three home tests that we now have. Last month in November, they approved this one called the Lucera Health All-in-One Test. And this one is like a $50 test that you all of these use swabs that you kind of nasal swabs that one you plug that swab into a vial put that vial into this portable battery device that uses a light to indicate a test result and so you know as soon as like 11 minutes whether or not you're positive the second one they just approved this tuesday is by a company called Alum in australia that one is 30 dollars also a nasal swab but you have to download an app And so by Bluetooth, they'll transmit this result to your smartphone and you'll learn the result that way. The newest one that was authorized by FDA just on Wednesday, that one's the Abbott Binex Now. That one is a $25 test. It's a swab and then you put on a cardboard, kind of like a pregnancy test. There's going to be lines and the lines will tell you positive or negative. These tests are pretty accurate. They're more than 90% accurate in terms of detecting the virus, but they are not as accurate as the PCR tests, which are sent to labs and processed there. These are really, really great developments. The problem is it's in such short supply, all of them, for the for kind of the coming few weeks. The Lucero one, we're not going to even see them nationally until spring of next year. The Alum one... They say they'll have 100,000 per day by January and somewhere near a million per day by middle of next year. The one that has the biggest chance of having a quick impact is the Abbott by Next Now one. That's because they've already been manufacturing these in the millions, tens of millions, and the federal government's been sending them around to nursing homes and schools across the country. The difference now is they're approving it for home use. 
It's really exciting news. We've been waiting for these home tests for a long time, but there's limitations. These are not coming for a while, at least not in mass quantities. And they're still not the, at the price point that would really, that you could use them every day. You could hand them out throughout the community until we get to like a $5 rapid turnaround test that you take in the morning before you go to work. We're not going to kind of fix this testing transmission problem. At this point, our testing has been so broken for so long. I don't think any one thing is going to fix it. But a lot of the experts I've been talking to say, even if you get testing capacity up, even if you get these home tests out there, it doesn't do any good if there's not strategy um, put towards the testing. So look at vaccines and how we're delivering vaccines. There's prioritization. There's a nationwide strategy. We, nine months into this, we don't have any kind of a national testing strategy still. So capacity is going to matter and these home tests are going to matter, but you need to deploy them smartly in order for it to make a difference. William One is a health and science reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about the stories in today's show, check out our show notes or go to postreports.com. I'm Maggie Penman. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.